Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open those to the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, at the end of John 20, and at the end of John 21, we'll be kind of reading from two different chapters of the Bible. And today, we finally finish out the Gospel of John, no mas, after today. We are closing it out today. We look at what we would call the epilogue of the Gospel of John. The epilogue is essentially a, a closing statement, and the closing statement of John really does two different things. It, it brings together, summarizes, or defines who Jesus is, and then it also mentions our reaction to who he is. So I'm going to begin in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and then I'll go to chapter 21. It says this, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things have been written, so that, result, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. John 21, 24 through 25. This is the disciple John who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if, I, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. That is our text today. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Well, today, this morning, we finish the Gospel of John. Believe it or not, you know, some of you probably never thought I would actually arrive at this day. Um, but today, we close it. It is finished. No mas after today. But I'm going to kind of open us up this morning with two different questions. Based on the Gospel of John, based on the, the, the plethora of weeks, I don't know if that works together, um, but based on all of the weeks that we have spent studying the Gospel of John, let me just ask you the question. I'm going to ask you to answer with me. Who is Jesus according to the Gospel of John? Who is Jesus? The Son of God. Good. What else? Life. What else? Son. What else? Hmm? Bread of life. Very good. What else is he? Yep. What else? Yep. The light of the world. What else is he? Yeah, the resurrection and life, John chapter 12, John chapter 11, excuse me. What else? The Word. Yep, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What else? Anything else? So we've seen the Gospel of John kind of unfold this picture of who Jesus is. But the first question I have is, who is Jesus? And the second question I have this morning is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? What? Now, what's wrong with the second question? We in Churchum usually ask the second question before we answer the first question. The, the, the relevance of the second question is irrelevant. It is irrelevant. Who is Jesus to me? Because it really doesn't matter who Jesus is to me. It matters who Jesus is. And out of who he is, then I must decide who he is to me. The moment you encounter the truth about Jesus Christ, at that moment in time, you must decide for yourself who you will serve. The moment you encounter truth about Jesus Christ, you must make a choice. You must make a decision to either believe and submit to him as Lord or to deny him altogether. Putting him on the shelf or only, you know, kind of obeying him one day a week is really, in a sense, putting him on the shelf. When we encounter the Gospel of John, when we see these 21 chapters, when we see the identity of Jesus unfold, it leaves us with a choice to make. That's the point 
of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. That there must be a decision to make that either we are going to see Jesus and live for Him, or we are going to put Him off altogether. So according to the Gospel of John, who is Jesus? And because of who He is, what choice must we make? The question we seek to answer today is, because of who Jesus is, what choice must we make today? This question is answered in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and we see kind of the second part of the epilogue in 21, 24 through 25. We see who Jesus is and our decision that we must make in chapter 20, and then we see the authentication of the gospel in chapter 21. And, and the title of my sermon is, is the John's Epilogue. Now, what is an epilogue? According to the dictionary, which is Google these days, an epilogue is a section at the end of a book that serves as a comment on or a conclusion to what has happened. John's epilogue serves as a conclusion to what has happened. It brings into conclusion or finality of who Jesus is and then the decision we must make in lieu of it. Now, um, before... You think that today's uh, sermon, because it's only on an epilogue, before you, you, you tune me out and you think it's boring, okay, so I want you to think about your favorite movie, or, or just think about one of your favorites, okay, if you can't choose. Think about your favorite movie that you like to watch again and again and again. Do you may have those? What does every single great movie have? It has a, what, terrific ending. Am I the only one that's noticed this? I mean, think about just a couple of my favorite movies. Ben-Hur. Now, some of you probably don't know that one. It was made way before I was born in 1959. But we see a great ending of that movie where his mother and his sister are healed from leprosy. You think about one of my other favorite movies, The Lord of the Rings. Anybody else like that movie? That that the end, what happens? You know, Frodo sails off to some distant land. There is a conclusion. Every single great story has an epilogue that ties it all together. That is John. In John chapter 20, verse 31 and 31, 30 and 31, it brings it all together. It ties it all together. Today is the bookend. Now what makes the Gospel of John in particular unique is not only does it have a great ending, not only does it have an epilogue that ties it together, but it also has something called a prologue. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, it has an introductory section. It, it really introduces the character of Christ, and then the rest of the book itself proves the prologue. Now, what is a prologue? A prologue is the opposite of an epilogue. The prologue is a separate introductory section into a literary work. It introduces the main character. In John chapter 1, which we've seen before, and I know I spent a long time, and that was many, many moons ago. I had more hair and more, less gray hair than when we actually started this book. I'm sure if I looked back at when I actually started the Gospel of John, I would have aged a little bit. It's been a, kind of a crazy two years. Anyways, moving on. But if you notice, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is the prologue. And that is really John's since thesis statement. Now, how many of you have ever taken an English class before and written a research paper what did your English teacher tell you to do? To have a thesis statement, and the rest of your research paper proves that thesis statement, right? John chapter 1 through 18 is the prologue. In a sense, that is his thesis statement. And John spends the rest of the book proving that prologue, proving the thesis statement, and that at the end of the Gospel of John, there is an epilogue that kind of ties it all together. 
So if you have your Bible, I want to kind of show you the epilogue of John. And today we're going to kind of do a deductive sermon. I'm going to kind of give you the point up front of each of my sections of my sermon as we unpack it. But I want you to notice John chapter 20, verse 30, it says this. Therefore, many other signs. Notice that. Therefore, many other signs. So there are other things that John could have written. Other signs. Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There are three different markers of Jesus' identity in this one verse. There are three. But wait, but look at verse 31 if you have your text up here, if you don't have one. It says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you count with me, there seems to be only two different markers of who Jesus is, but there's actually a third. The first assertion that John makes in this one verse is that Jesus is the Savior. Now, some of you are looking at this text with me, and there's no no reference. There's no reference to Jesus being the Savior of the world or the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Where is it mentioned? You know, unbeknownst to me, when I first started studying this text, there is a word in this verse that tells me, that verifies that Jesus is God's salvation. But I want you to notice first, I want you to notice in verse 30, do you see a word therefore? What does a therefore signify? Pastor Gary, my mentor, the previous pastor of Calvary Bible Church said, a therefore is therefore a reason. What does a therefore do? It ties it all together. What, er, what happened earlier in John chapter 20? You saw the appearances of Jesus to Mary Magdalene, to the ten, and to Thomas. John is using that one word, therefore, to tie it all together. And these things have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But again, where, where does it talk about that Jesus is Savior or God's salvation? We say all the time that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he paid for the sins of the world, that he's the Lamb of God that takes away all the sin. But there is proof that Jesus is the Savior of the world in the, in the most ordinary of words. We say all the time, Jesus, 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 all that word, but we have no idea what it actually means. You know, I, I never really put together until this week and never understood where we associate Jesus, the word Jesus, with God's salvation. I mean, we see the prediction of Jesus being Savior of the world throughout the New Testament. We see it prophesied in the Old Testament. But where does it actually begin? Where do we begin to associate Jesus with the Savior of the world? Jesus' name itself means God's salvation. His first name, Jesus, tells me that he is the Savior of the world. Where do I get that from? Jesus is the transliteration of a Hebrew word into Greek and then into English. And the Hebrew name for Jesus is Yehoshua, which is where we get the word Joshua. The word Joshua is a combination of two different Hebrew words. It is Yahweh and Yasha. Mix those together and we see that Jesus' own name, his Hebrew name, is two words combined mean God's salvation or God's Savior. This word, 
This word right here, I, I didn't even notice it earlier this week, but there are three different assertions of who Jesus truly is. And his first statement identifies him as God's salvation. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he was put here to be Savior of the world. Think about Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The angel is speaking. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Joshua, or God's salvation, for he shall save his people from his sins. I'm going I'm to take a time out real quick. Um, has that gotten old? I know we talk about all the time that Jesus is Savior of the world, that he died for my sin. That is a theme that you've probably heard maybe throughout your entire life of you becoming to church. But that is something that should never become old, but it just unfortunately does. We just have seen that theme too many times. But Jesus is Savior of the world. What does it say in 1 John 2, 2? And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The first name Jesus tells me in the Hebrew that he is God's salvation. He is God's person to deliver us from the sin that we have committed. An illustration, Jesus is the lifeguard of our soul. He saw us drowning in our sin, and he took on flesh, dove in, taking and paying for the sins of the world. Jesus is Savior. You know, um, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, Today is uh, the epilogue. This is totally off script. There's nothing new that I'm going to share with you today. (laughs) Okay, There's really not a whole lot new. Why? Because the epilogue is summarizing who Jesus is. It's summarizing the whole Gospel of John. So if you've been here for a couple of years, then, then you know that I started a long time ago, and I, and I did have less gray hair when I started this book. But there's really nothing new. The epilogue is summarizing. It is the book, and it's telling exactly what the Gospel of John has proven. The thesis statement is in the beginning, and again, and again, and again, throughout the Gospel of John, John proves that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that He came and He died for our sins so that we can be justified, declared innocent of our sin before the Father if we would believe in Him. Amen? What does it say? The Father sent the Son to be the propitiation. This is in the book of Colossians. For the Father rescued us. I love that image. For the Father rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The first assertion that Jesus, that John makes about Jesus is that Jesus is God's salvation. It is in his very first name. It is the Hebrew word Yehoshua. It's a combination of Yahweh and Yasha. But how did Jesus prove it? I mean, these are an assertion here, but how did he prove it? Jesus proved that he is the Savior of the world by dying on the cross, by dying as the Passover lamb to take upon him the sins of the world, allowing us to be justified, guiltless before the Father of our sin. The first assertion is that Jesus is Savior, defining his purpose, John chapter 1, verse 29. But I'm going to say something. I'm going to say it three times in the sermon. That information 
without transformation is perspiration. Okay, I'm going to explain that. That information without transformation leads to perspiration, leads to sweat. What do I mean by that? It makes you stink, okay? That if we just know something to be true, and we don't let that truth change our lives, then it leads us to just be prideful. Knowledge puffs, but love edifies. Remember that? Information without transformation leads to perspiration. It leads to us smelling bad. We don't live for Christ. First assertion is Jesus is Savior, seen in his first name. And then notice here, the second assertion is that he is the Christ. Verse 31 again, but these things have been written so that you may believe. Notice this, believe is in two different times and in two different versions. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is Savior, defining his purpose, and Jesus is the Christ defining his designation or his title. Now, we have spent a lot of time, especially in John chapter 12, really discussing what the word Christ means. Now, many people in church culture believe that uh, Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. It is Jesus' designation. And again, can I just speak, um, just like the word Savior, that we hear the word Christ so much that it just loses its potency. But when a Jew in the first century would see that Jesus is the Christ, their eyes would bug out of their head. They would, their jaw would hit the floor. Why? Because this word, this designation, tells a first century Jew and us today that Jesus, God's salvation, is the Christ, meaning that He is the Messiah, that He is the Anointed One. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means the Smeared One. The word Messiah, or the word Christ, the transliterated version in the New Testament, means to smear oil over. It means to anoint one. A Jew would really understand the word Messiah. In the Old Testament, priests were anointed, kings were anointed, and prophets were anointed. But to a Jew in the first century, they would see this word Christ, and they would see it through the lens of Daniel chapter 9. We see the Christ predicted in Genesis 3.15. We see it unfolded, its meaning unfolded throughout the pages of the Old Testament. We see, looking back on the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 61, Psalm 2, but a Jew in the first century would see Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks of Daniel predicted there. They would see the word Christ associated with Jesus and their eyes would light up. Why? Because to a Jew in the first century, it says that Jesus is the anointed one to deliver the king of Israel. But how did Jesus prove? So the, the epilogue is a summation of the proof that has happened in the Gospel of John. So let, just think about the Gospel of John with me. How did John the author prove that Jesus is the Christ? If you could really, if you think about this, if you could really summarize the whole Gospel of John. You have the prologue, chapters 1-4 through four, prove that Jesus is the Christ. 5-17 through 17, prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And chapter 18-21 to 21, prove that Jesus is the Savior of the world. John chapter 1-4 through four, proves that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Now where do I get that from? He confirms that Jesus is the Messiah through his disciples' own word. In John chapter 1, verse 41, Andrew. What does Andrew do? He pulls a Peter, okay? He, he runs and finds Simon Peter and says, Behold, we have found the Messiah or the Christ. 
He, John confirms that Jesus is the Messiah in chapter 1. He again confirms it in John chapter 2 with the wedding of Cana, turning water into wine. And then he also confirms that Jesus is the Messiah by his passion for holiness. Let me ask you a question. Where did Jesus prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, his passion for holiness? I'm hearing murmurs. I, mean, I think you probably... It's the clearing of the temple. Jesus confirms that he's Messiah by his passion for God's house and his passion for holiness and purity. So John confirms Jesus is Messiah. Then he clarifies that Jesus is Messiah in chapter 3. What happens in John chapter 3? Nicodemus. And what does Jesus associate himself with? As the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, so the Son of Man shall be lifted up. But then later in John chapter 3, John the Baptist confirms and clarifies that Jesus is Messiah. Verse 28 of chapter 3. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. So he confirms, he clarifies. And then in John chapter 4, what is John chapter 4 all about? It's really just one main story. It shows the compassion of the Christ, the compassion of the Messiah, that the Messiah is not just for Jews, but for all people. Why do I say that? Who does he come and who does he minister? A Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He sees this woman that is thrown aside out of society, and he comes to her and shows compassion as the Christ Messiah, who he is for all people. Jesus' confirmation in the, uh, as the Christ, John 1 and 2. His clarity as the Christ and the compassion of the Christ in John chapter 4. But information without transformation leads to perspiration. It makes you stink. Because of who Jesus is, what change takes place in my life? That's the question we must answer. Pause. What is the third assertion in John chapter 20, verse 31? That Jesus is God's salvation, combination of Yahweh and salvation of the Old Testament. Jesus is God's salvation, and that he is the Christ. And number three, that he is the Son of God. Now, how was this proven? I mean, think about, think about how did John, throughout the Gospel of John, prove that Jesus was the Son of God? John 5 through 15, that gigantic section of scripture, in that, in those, I guess, 10 chapters, John proves that Jesus is the Son of God. How did he do that? Three ways. Number one, through miracles. I mean, think about the miracles that happened from John 5 to John 11. What, just off the top of your head, what happened? The healing of the man beside the pool of Bethesda, we talked about that. You see John chapter 6, what, what, at least two miracles happened in John 6. What happened? Number one, the feeding of the 5,000, right? That Jesus took a happy meal and fed basically 20,000 people. And then what else happened? That Jesus walked on water. John proves that Jesus is the Son of God by his own miracles. And notice, if you will, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, therefore many other signs. There were other miracles that happened, but these have been compiled so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John proves he's the Son of God first by miracles and second by discourse. Um, have you ever thought about why Jesus actually died? I mean, we, we know that he died for the sins of the world, but we've talked about this, but why did the Jews actually kill Jesus? There, is, there are some scholars, some people that say that Jesus never proclaimed to be God. That is, they have clearly not read the Bible. Because why did they kill Jesus? He proclaimed himself to be God, and specifically the Son of God. Let me just ask you the question. I'm going to test you on something. I'm going to test you for your fervency 
of doctrine and uh, orthodoxy of doctrine. If I, if I came up to the pulpit, okay, I'm not going to ever do this. I'll play, okay, I fell off my rocker if this happened. If I ever came up in the pulpit and said, church, I am the son of God. I am God himself. What would you do? Hopefully you would leave, number one. And number two, hopefully you would throw a hymnal at my face, okay? And I won't press charges, I promise. But that's what they kill him over. It's clear that Jesus proclaims to be God himself, and they killed him for it. They crucified Jesus for blasphemy. In their eyes, it was blasphemy, but in reality, it was truth. Amen? He was God. He was the Son of God. He proved it by miracles. Number two, he proved it by discourse. What one thing is said at least seven times throughout the Gospel of John. It's actually said more than that. But we decipher it down to seven I am statements. He says, Ego Amy, I am what? There are seven in totality. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. Each time Jesus says that, he is associating himself to be the Son of God and God himself. And then number three, Jesus proves he is the Son of God through his disciples. Listen. How many of the 12 disciples suffered persecution for their faith? 12 out of 12. What does that tell you? That no one dies for a lie. The fact that his disciples would suffer and die for their faith tells me not only is that Jesus the truth, but all of the miracles that testify in the scripture actually happen. There's some people that want to disregard all of the miracles in the Bible. But why would they die otherwise? Why would John, who wrote this gospel, suffer exile on the island of Patmos if it were false? No one dies for a lie. The proof that Jesus is the Son of God are the miracles, are the discourses he gives, and the lives of the disciples themselves. But information without transformation leads to perspiration and makes you stink. Just seeing Jesus, just understanding who he is as Savior, as King, as Messiah, as all these things, just understanding that and not actually letting it change you causes you to become prideful. But these things, what is the, what is, what is the change that should happen? But these things have been written so that result, you, notice, you, you, may believe. This is an aorist tense. This talks about a moment in time. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing, this is a continuing action. This is a present participle. This is a continual aspect. By you believing, continuing, that you may have life in His name. What is the result? What's the point of the Gospel of John? It says it right here. That you may first believe that at a moment in time, you come to faith, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you also continually believing you may have life in his name. The way we have life is by believing and then also continuing to believe. The point of the Gospel of John is not just to know something, but the point of the Gospel of John is to believe in Jesus Christ. And the outcome of believing in Jesus Christ is life. A lifeless Christian is not a Christian. 
One who says they believe in Jesus Christ but has never been changed, has never repented, and never followed Christ is not a Christian. Um, If you prayed a sinner's prayer one time, or if you believed as a child in Jesus, or someone told you you were a Christian but there was no life change in your life, then guess what? You never believed in Jesus. Because what do I see? The text is clear. That you may believe in Jesus, God's salvation is the Christ's Son, and that believing you may have life in His name. The result of believing in Jesus Christ is life. A lifeless Christian is not a Christian. Can I get an amen? Some people might say that that's offensive. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to offend you. It's just the truth. That if you prayed some prayer, that you, you, you t- someone told you a Christian, or you think that you could be good enough to end up in heaven. But if you've never had life change, you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. If you have never been born again, if you do not know what it means to have the rivers of living water coming out of you, then you may be today, you may be fooling yourself that you're a Christian. A lifeless Christian is not a Christian. An unchanged Christian is not a Christian. A Christian in knowledge only is not a Christian. And a true Christian examines themselves continually, believing. This is continual action. They never stop believing. I was thinking about the Gospel of John this week. I was unpacking this in Panera Bread. I, I mean, I, I've spent like 3,000 weeks on this, on this book. I mean, I don't know, really, some of y'all should go back and actually look at it. But, I mean, I've spent a lot of time on the Gospel of John. And guess what happens every week? Like, every week. I re-examine my own life. And I say, do I believe? I mean, literally, I could be saved every Sunday morning, okay? Because I look at the text, it just confirms my, what I already have believed at a moment in time and that I continue to believe ongoing forever. That Jesus is God's salvation, the Messiah and the Son of God, and believing in him, you may have life in his name. Information without transformation is perspiration. The question I have today is, do you have life? Do you have life? Has God changed you? And is God continually changing you as you continue to believe in Him? Friends, listen to me. If your faith has become stagnant, then believe. If you changed, experience the transforming work of the gospel. We see the purpose and the, the product or the byproduct of the gospel of John. But notice with me really quickly part two of the epilogue, John 21. You can flip your page over. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. If you notice here in John chapter 21, he basically just gives his authentication of the gospel. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote these things that we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if I were to write write them in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. As I uh, read verse 25... This week, I think about being a fly on Jesus' cloak. I wonder about the miracles that he performed and the discourses that he gave that were not recorded in the Gospel of John. But as I said here, what has been written is enough. 
what has been written of Jesus Christ is enough to believe in him in a moment in time and to continue to believe in him ongoing throughout our lifetime. My question is, is today is twofold. Number one, who is Jesus? According to John chapter 20, according to the gospel of John as a whole, but this verse in particular, Jesus is God's salvation, he is the Christ, and he is the Son of God. But the question I have, and the question I'm going to leave you with today, is based on who he is. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Up in the balcony. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Is he your king? Is he your Messiah? The one that has been ordained by God to take on the throne. Is he your Lord? Let me just ask you a question. Have you ever surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? We Can I just speak plainly? Um, not in theory, but just real plain. Um, we like to do this. That we'll give God everything. Except this. Lord, I'll give you everything. I'll give you, I'll give you my money. I'll give you my house. I'll give you my career. But you can't take this. You can't take my kids. You can't take my family. Being surrendered to the Lord. Him being king over all. Then that means that everything is under his dominion. That we should not have one thing that we keep to ourselves, that we are servants of God, that we should follow Him, that He is our Lord and our Messiah, our Christ, and that every part of our being, our career, our family, what we put into our brain, the money we have in the bank, our business, everything should be under His rule and Lordship. Can I just speak? Have you surrendered to Him? Have you ever, just in a moment of time, just said, Lord, everything I have is yours? Is he your Messiah? Is he your Christ? Is he your King? Number two, is he your Son of God? That title really shows who Jesus truly is. That he's not just a prophet, but that he is God himself. And listen to me, friends. If he is God himself, then what is he? He is sovereign. He is in control. We live in an out-of-control world. Amen? It's a gigantic dumpster fire out there, okay? But God is still in control. Let me just speak. There are two areas of our lives that show beyond a shadow of a doubt that we struggle with Jesus' sovereignty in our life. Shame and anxiety. Shame and anxiety. What does shame show? Shame shows that we don't believe that God is sovereign, that really He hasn't forgiven us for past mistakes. But what does it say in Psalm 103 that we read a couple of weeks ago? I'm going to turn there and read it with you. Psalm 103 says this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father 
has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. Shame. Holding on to the mistakes of our past is a, is a verification that we do not believe that God is sovereign, that we do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Our sin is paid for on the cross. Amen? But then the second thing is anxiety. What is anxiety? It is worrying about things you cannot control. Right? Can I, can I, does anybody else in this room beyond, beyond this guy struggle with anxiety? This guy like magnified, okay? But what does this say? Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that He is Lord of your life? And then number three, do you believe that He is Savior? Um, this world believes if they admit it or not, they believe in karma, that we get what we deserve. That if I can earn enough credits, that I can get to heaven. I hear that, you know, as a, the- as a theologian, I'm not a theologian, I'm a preacher, whatever it is. Okay, but I hear that theme all the time. Does anybody else hear that theme? I like pay special attention to it. That if I live a good life and I'm kind to other people, that God will let me into heaven. That is false. That is the salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works as any man should boast. The point of the gospel of John. But these things have been written so that you may believe. That's the question I have for you. Is he your savior? Do you believe that Jesus really is God's salvation? Have you ever received him? Put your trust in him? Ever had the life change? So you may have life in his name. That's where I'm going to close today. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those online, those in the balcony, those here, if you have never experienced the change that only God through Christ can bring, then trust and believe in Him and you shall be saved. Is He your Lord? Is He your son, the Son of God to you? And is He your Savior? Bow with me. Father, we thank You for today. Um, Lord, you know, there's really nothing new here. It is John's epilogue. He puts a bow on this book. But Lord, the theme and the action is maybe something new to somebody here today. Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior of their world, of their life. Maybe they think that they were saved because they prayed a prayer when they were five years old, or maybe when they are 30, but they have never had the change that comes out of believing in you. I pray for those. I pray that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of the blind would open the eyes of the depraved and the sinful and let us see our need of you and trust in you as our Lord and Savior. Thank you for Calvary. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the older generation. I thank you for all the ways that you're working in this church. And uh, we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.